You're listening to Preach the Word with David Ryu, Sermon Archive. Well, please join me in a word of prayer. Blessed Lord, we come before you today and we approach your throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who was tempted in every way that we are, yet was without sin. And so we look to Christ, our true high priest, who made a way for us and now intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. Lord, we thank you for the precious time we share together with our brothers and sisters at the Men's and Women's Fellowship. As we discussed on Friday, help us to change and conform our standard of beauty to your standard of beauty and not to the world's. Help us to pursue modesty and godly character as these things are of great worth in your sight and help us to embrace and live out biblical manhood and womanhood as revealed in your word. Now, as we look into the Holy Scriptures, we pray for the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Prepare the soil of our hearts so that we will receive and retain your word and yield much fruit. And make this sermon most useful for the sanctification of your bride your church. We pray all this in the name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, today we continue in our sermon series through the book of Ephesians. And so please open up your Bibles with me to Ephesians chapter 1. And we'll be looking at verses 15 to 16. Ephesians 1, 15 to 16. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Amen. This was the reading of God's word. Well, we spent a total of five weeks diving deep into Ephesians chapter 1, 3 to 14, which was the Apostle Paul's doxology and praise to God. And there we were reminded that believers who are in Christ and belong to Christ are truly blessed beyond comprehension. And believers have so many reasons to praise God for. And in this next section of Ephesians chapter 1, Paul transitions into prayer. We see prayer of thanksgiving to God in verses 15 to 16, and prayer of intercession for the believers from 17 to 23. 
Today, of course, we will focus on Paul's prayer of thanksgiving from 15 to 16. And we will ask ourselves just three simple questions, okay? The first question is, what is Paul thankful for? Secondly, why is Paul thankful? Thirdly, who is Paul thankful to? So let's jump right into the first question. What is Paul thankful for? Well, I suppose the apostle had a lot to be thankful for, just like you and me. Of course, he was thankful for his redemption and salvation secured and won by Christ. He was thankful to breathe and to live another day. He was thankful for an able body and food on the table. He was thankful for every good gift from above. Moreover, Paul was thankful for not just the good things, but for the bad and the ugly. In 1 Thessalonians 5.16, he writes, Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so even in suffering, even in pain, even in sorrow, Paul was thankful in all circumstances. You see, gratitude for everything and in all circumstances and situations is an important discipline that every single believer needs to learn and to practice. This is God's will for us. We know this to be true. However, I think the kind of gratitude that we often neglect, overlook, and forget about is the gratitude for the church. I mean, when was the last time you were deeply, deeply thankful for your church? And how often do you pray for your church? In verse 16 of our passage today, we see Paul's deep affections and gratitude specifically for the church. Out of all the things that he was thankful for, he specifically names the church of Ephesus. He writes, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Paul's heart is overflowing with constant gratitude for the church of Ephesus. He cannot stop giving thanks for them. And his thankfulness spills over to prayer and intercession on their behalf. Brothers and sisters in Christ, this is truly worthy of your imitation. Like the Apostle, thankfulness for our churches and praying for our churches are crucial disciplines we must seek to learn and to practice. Now then, let us ask the subsequent question, 
Why? Why was Paul so thankful for the church of Ephesus? Well, from what we can gather, Paul was probably locked up in a prison cell in Rome as he was writing or dictating this letter to the church in Ephesus. He had ministered among them for more than two years, and then he departed to continue his mission, as we read in Acts. And though Paul could not be physically present with the Ephesian believers to see their progress, to see their growth, he had received and heard good reports about them. In verse 15 he writes, I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all God's people. So why was Paul so thankful for them? What was the report about this church specifically that so moved his heart to thanksgiving? Well, let me tell you, it was not a report about their fantastic praise team and their contemporary cool worship style. It was not a report about their new state-of-the-art building or cool events and programs they host at the church. Paul was not impressed by those things. The modern man and the modern woman today are drawn to churches that operate more like businesses. They are like, they are like consumers searching to find the perfect product that suit their own preferences, wants, and desires. They are very happy to shop around for a church that is convenient and entertaining for them. But a church to be truly thankful for, in Paul's mind, demonstrated two very simple things. Faith and love. Faith and love. The city of Ephesus was a very large trading center of the Roman province of Asia. By ancient standards, it was a densely populated city, perhaps as many as 300,000 people. And it was home to the great temple of Artemis, which was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. As you can imagine, the, the worship of this Roman goddess pervaded the city, and there was strong opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The opposition was so strong that in fact in Acts chapter 19, we read of how a large riot gathered to end Paul's ministry and to drive him out of the city. They almost killed him. Ephesus was certainly not a safe place to be a faithful Christian. And yet, as Paul hears the reports of the gospel seeds he planted begin to grow and yield fruit, he cannot stop giving thanks for them. Even though 
a pagan society surrounded them, even though it was disadvantageous to be a Christian, the Ephesian believers demonstrated resilient faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They believed and trusted in the gospel that was preached to them. Now, there is a lot of buzz and confusion about what faith really is. Of course, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see, as the author of Hebrews puts it. But throughout church history, wicked and ignorant men have sought to pervert and change what faith is so that it is no longer effective to save. The fact is that roughly one-third of the world's population today identify as, as some sort of Christian. But the question is, do they really all have true saving faith? And I am not optimistic that they do. In order to preserve and clarify the gospel, the Protestant reformers carefully outlined the biblical definition of what faith is. And they recognized three different elements that make up true saving faith. The first element is what they called noticia, which means knowledge. This is the intellectual content of what one believes. Faith always includes a set of beliefs, a statement of faith. A person who has true faith must have correct and accurate information about Jesus Christ and his gospel. The second element is what they called a census, which means assent. And this is the conviction that the content of your faith is true. It's not enough for you to have the right knowledge and information concerning Christ, but do you really believe it to be factually true? Is it true? The third element is what they called fiducia, which means trust. Faith requires personal trust. Faith cannot remain an intellectual enterprise. When Jesus confronts a demon in Mark chapter 1, verse 24, the demon cries out, I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. You see, even the demons know and believe the truth. But saving faith is the notion of trusting, of leaning and depending upon Christ for salvation. You see, faith is not just some kind of hopeful or strong conviction. Because Muslims have that, Hindus have that, but they do not possess true saving faith. Sinners are only justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ 
alone. This is the biblical gospel that was recovered in the Protestant Reformation. Faith is the instrument of our justification. Only as a person has faith in Christ, they can be justified, having all their sins forgiven, laying hold of the righteousness of Christ. Only as a person has faith in Christ, they can stand in the presence of the holy God and be fully accepted on account of Christ. And I make it a point to say that faith is the instrument of justification as opposed to the grounds of justification. Because faith is simply the medium through which we receive justification, the benefits of. But the grounds, the basis of our justification is not our faith. It's not. Rather, the grounds of our justification is Christ and His finished work on the cross and His righteousness. This is really important for you to understand. And so let me share this by way of illustration. You know, something very Canadian that I've never done that I would like to try one day is uh, skating on a lake that is frozen over. I've never tried that before. And I see people do it all the time. Right? They, they set up the nets and they put on the skates and they play hockey on Lake Ontario. You see that before? And the rule of thumb is that the ice needs to be five inches thick to be strong enough to support your weight, and so you can play on it. But even if you know for sure that the ice is thick enough to support your weight, it takes some measure of faith for you to step onto that ice and hop around in the middle of Lake Ontario. But no matter how much faith you have in that ice, if the ice is not strong enough, you will fall through. On the other hand, you can have very little faith in that ice, very weak and little faith in that ice. But if the ice is strong enough, you will never fall through. And you see a lot of Christians, they grossly misunderstand and they are misinformed because they were taught that their faith is the ice. Their faith is the ice and the ground on which they stand. And so they lack assurance when their faith is weak or they grow prideful when their faith is strong. But brothers and sisters, it is not your faith or the strength of your faith that holds you up. It is not your faith or the strength of your faith that saves you. It's not. Rather, it is the strength of our mighty Savior, Jesus Christ, that saves us. 
Christ is the immovable rock of our salvation on which we stand. We will not fall through. He is our thick layer of ice that will not let us fall through. In the words of Charles Spurgeon, faith is the tongue that begs pardon, the hand which receives it, and the eye which sees it, but it is not the price which buys it. Think about it. Our faith did not die for our sins. It is Christ who died for us and redeemed us, swallowing up the holy wrath of God for sinners who would trust in him and pronounced, it is finished. It is Christ who lived the perfect life and obeyed every law of God, and it is his righteousness that is imputed and given to us who trust in him. It is Christ who rose again in victory, conquering death and all forces of evil, and ascended into heaven, where he intercedes for us at the right hand of the Father. You see, it is not our faith or our faithfulness that saves us. But it is Christ, it is Christ who saves us through faith. He is the grounds of our justification, while faith is the instrument by which we receive Christ and his righteousness. And so Paul was thankful for the church of Ephesus, not because they were proud and strong, faithful Christians who had great faith, but because they wholly depended upon a great Savior. Can this be said about our church? Are we a people of faith? A people who do not depend on our own works or our own merits or efforts, but a people who humbly and wholly depend upon Christ alone, Are we a people of humble faith? And the other reason why Paul was so thankful for the, for the church of Ephesus was because of their love for all God's people. As he tells us in the second half of, of verse 15, love is the greatest of Christian virtues. You probably know that. In 1 Corinthians 13, the apostle writes, If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor, and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. And then he reminds us, love 
is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. And the honest truth, brothers and sisters, is that love is not easy. It's not easy nor cheap. Love is often very difficult and very costly. Love, as you might know, requires self-sacrifice and submission. Love engages our whole being, our will, our emotions, and our actions. As Pastor Vody Bakken puts it, love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action. Love is an act of the will accompanied by emotion that leads to action. Of course, Christians, you and I are called to the highest standard of love. For we have been shown the greatest of love. This is how God loved us and showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. Not that we loved God, but he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Yet whoever does not love does not know God. Because God is love. And so believers who are recipients of God's love must love their neighbor as themselves. They must even love their enemies and those who are most difficult to love. The command to love is not an option for you if you're a Christian. You cannot opt out of love. You must love, you have to love. Disobedience is not an option. Now I suppose that most Christians understand this. Most Christians understand this command to love. They may make every effort to love their parents, their siblings, their colleagues, their friends, they may even make every effort to love the homeless and the underprivileged in desolate places, but they do not love going to church. They do not like to fellowship with believers. They are content with unresolved conflicts in the church. They hold grudges against other believers. They spread malicious gossip. They cause division in the church, well then, they are hypocrites who fail their basic duty to love Christ. You know why? Because the church is the body 
of Christ. You cannot have Christ without his body. If you hate the church, then you mutilate the church and you cut off his head. And I fear that God is not in you. Because love for fellow believers is the necessary byproduct of faith in Christ. It is the evidence of true saving faith. And it is the fruit of the Holy Spirit living in the believer. And so look with me to the second half of verse 15. Paul here is not thankful for the church of Ephesus because of their love in general for all people, but rather, he's thankful specifically for their love for all God's people. You see that? This is the church. This is the body of Christ, the, the body of believers. Elsewhere in Galatians chapter 6, verse 10, Paul tells us, Therefore, as we have the opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. You see, love and allegiance to Christ and to his body, the family of believers, it transcends, it must transcend even that of family in blood relationships. If you do not agree, then you simply do not understand the cost of discipleship. We must be able to boldly preach Christ to the Muslim world and tell them, Jesus is worth losing everything for. Even if your own father and brother abandons you and wants to kill you for becoming a Christian, you must still choose Christ. You must choose Christ because Christ is better. Christ is better than your family, your blood family. You must choose Christ. And when you do, we will welcome you into our family, the family of believers. This is your family now. We will take care of you. We will take care of your every need. And we will lay down our lives for you. Can we say that? Can we say that to the unbelieving world? You see, this is the heart of Christ. This is the rule of love in his family. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Do not forget these words of Christ. He tells us, By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. It is this radical love and unity between brothers and sisters in Christ lived out in the church that will prove to the world that we are truly his disciples. You see, 
And so I must ask again, can this be said about our church? Are we a people of love? A people who deeply love the church, the family of God? Do you love your church? Protect your church, serve your church, give to your church, pray for your church. Do you love your church? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? Do you love one another? Do you encourage them, care for them, edify them, share with them, show charity to them? Do you love the church, the body of Christ? Or would you rather spend most of your time with the world and not the body of Christ? If all of your friends and best friends are unbelievers and you love spending time with unbelievers more than you do with the church, think of what that says about your heart. Do you love the body of Christ? Do you love him? Do you love Jesus Christ? Now, let us consider the third and final question about our text. Who is Paul thankful to? Well, to be sure, Paul is thankful for the church of Ephesus, but his gratitude was not directed to them. What we observe here is a vertical direction, right? Paul gives thanks to God for their faith and love. You see, if, if the Christian has any faith at all, any faith at all, it is because God has regenerated them by the Holy Spirit. If the Christian has any love at all, it is because God enabled them by loving them first. If the Christian shows any measure of success and growth, it is because God granted it to them by grace. In Philippians 2, Paul writes to the believers, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Here we observe both human responsibility and divine responsibility that works together. You see that? We are commanded to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And yet we are reassured that it is God who works in us to will and to act. And so although, we, of course, we have real human responsibility to believe, to trust, to have faith, to love, to grow in holiness, we must remember that we can achieve and do nothing apart from God and His grace that enables us to cooperate with Him. And so Paul gives thanks to God for the faith and love of the Ephesian believers because God is the sole author of their salvation. God is the one who blessed them. 
predestined them, called them, adopted them, and redeemed them, as we saw in verses 3 to 14. And therefore, all the glory and all the thanksgiving goes to God alone. So, dear beloved Church of God, only as we are enabled by the grace of God, let us do everything to be a church that demonstrates faith and love. Humble faith that depends wholly upon Christ alone, the rock of our salvation, and radical love for one another as Christ has, has loved us and commanded us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son. Thank you that we were able to experience the greatest of love in Christ. And because, God, you first loved us, now we love you, God, and we love our neighbors. We love all people, but especially we take care of one another, brothers and sisters in Christ. You have called us to love the church for the church is the body of Christ. This is your family. And so help us to prove that we are truly your disciples by belonging to the church and loving the church and promoting the church. Lord, this is your family that you called us to be a part of. And it is the greatest privilege for us. And help us to truly see it that way and to experience this truth, to love the church, to pray for the church forevermore. We thank you. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.